This idea that you have to have a signed piece of paper, we have to found them on the phone. You know what? That has never been a problem in emergency medicine. The question is, what are the obligations of the emergency physicians to the private patient? I don't come to the operating room to tell you what to do. You've got to be very careful about coming down and telling me what to do. You cannot guarantee to be two places in once. Anytime it's a discussion, cha-ching, the bills just go up. Although we say this and we all agree, this is a bad idea. It is very common practice. There has to be some common sense and intelligence here. The MD after my name is just as big as the MD after his name. Thus conscience doth make cowards of us all, and we know the right thing to do. Why didn't he speak English? Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's the, what is it? Uh, we just, uh, it's November. It? November. That's right, November. <laughs> Can you believe it's November? Yes. It's getting a little chilly. Uh, a touch of winter has come to Michigan. <laughs> there it you is go. the November Risk Management Monthly, and I'm here with the legends, the uh, old men of emergency medicine, Rick Picotta, Greg Henry. And I know that Rick has a specific question for Greg this month. Well, the reason I have this question is because it certainly does not apply to the University of Southern California Emergency Department. It's about what happens when the private patient comes <laughs> to the emergency department and says, my doctor said he's going to meet me here kind of thing. Well, there's a couple variations of this. But they tend to be a problem because as soon as they say, I'm waiting for my doctor, the nurses kind of put like a chain link fence up around this person. It's a private patient. Dr. So-and-so is going to see him. Don't mess with that person. And the question is, what are the obligations of the emergency physicians to the private patient? Greg? Well, let me begin by taking a very classic case. And everybody who's an emergency doc working in a private hospital has seen this case. This is an actual case. It's called the Gooding case. And this is University Hospital of Jacksonville, Florida, versus Gooding. It's an older case, but it's a goodie. It's an oldie, but a goodie, and it hits all the points that we need. It's an oldie, but a gooding. Uh, oldie, but a gooding. <laughs> Very true. While at home, Mr. T. Haygood Gooding, a 61-year-old gentleman, was experiencing some abdominal pain. Now, he'd had abdominal pain in the past and been worked up by a gastroenterologist, who he contacted. Gastroenterologist's name was Borland, Dr. Borland. Dr. Borland knew that he was going to be over at the hospital, University Hospital, Jacksonville, and said, why don't you go to the emergency room, check in, and tell him I'll be down to see him. So he goes, checks in, the nurses put him in a room, put him in a gown. It just so happens Dr. Borland gets tied up upstairs with some other problems for a little while. And now it's one hour, and now it's two hours, and now we find that Mr. Gooding, with his enteritis, whatever it is, actually wasn't enteritis this time, it was his aortic aneurysm. And so by the time Dr. Borland walks into the room, the patient is hypotensive, tachycardic. And I think you know the results of this case. Not going to go well. He did badly. (laughs) And by the way, of course, what did the general surgeons all say? If only we'd seen him sooner, (laughs) we might have been able to save this patient. The lawsuit takes place, moves on. Now, you can understand that Dr. Borland, in an attempt to cover himself, basically, well, I sent them to the emergency department. I certainly expected that they would begin the process. Just understand, when put under pressure, an attending who deals with the emergency department will do whatever they can to decrease their amount of liability. The emergency department is sued and successfully in this case 
for failing to act. I think one question that Rick asked that we need to deal with right up front is your obligation to that patient. I don't remember anywhere in the COBRA law where it says just because they have a doctor who says they're going to meet them there, you are exempt from seeing that patient as you would any other patient and giving them a screening medical examination and doing what's appropriate. Now, I don't agree with fighting with patients if I don't need to. And the usual technique I use is if they say, well, my doctor's going to meet me, which is, by the way, a cold day in hell. It's one of the three great lies in America. Go to the other two. No, no, no. no. Don't go there. (laughs) But the bottom line is that's fine. If it is that one in a million case, terrific. But I usually say, oh, well, Dr. So-and-so is your doctor. Great guy. I work with him all the time. He kind of likes us to get these cases going for him for when he gets there. If it's a case, there's a problem at any point in time about billing or who did this or did that, we'll take care of that later. The point is there shouldn't be people in the department that you're not aware of. There shouldn't be doors that are closed with potentially sick people. And I don't care exactly what the disease entity is. You need to begin the usual and customary workup like you would with any other patient because otherwise it's actually discriminatory as well as a COBRA violation. So it's tag your it. As soon as they become part of the emergency department itself through a particular door, once they're in your department, once they're registered as your patient, tag your it, you have to do something reasonable, customary to look after this person, even if Braunwald is coming in to look after this person. Well, they're not registered as your patient, and that's one of the things that kind of muddies the water here. They're registered as an emergency department patient. The question is, it's Dr. So-and-so's private patient in your emergency department, and it's one of those things where that's why we're discussing it, because it comes up all the time in community hospitals. One of the things I would like to expand on is, and Tala also said, when a minor child comes in from a little league accident, and the fact is that the parents are there, but they're brought in by the coach, that that child has to have a medical screening examination independent of any consents from anybody. And if that examination requires that x-rays be done or blood tests be done to ascertain whether there's a medical emergency, you need to go ahead and do those things. You certainly can't do any kind of elective kinds of things without permission, but certainly nobody would ever stop in a child because, well, we don't have any consent unless you're a really a rookie ER doc. Yeah, you'd have to be a rookie because not only does the law require that you examine them to see whether an emergency exists, but common sense and what they call the reasonable man doctrine says the reasonable person would want their child to be examined to see if an emergency exists. This idea that you have to have a signed piece of paper, we have to found them on the phone, you know what? That has never been a problem in emergency medicine. Failure to evaluate is the problem, not to evaluate correctly and then to know what to do. Rick's right. I wouldn't do an elective tonsillectomy on a child in the department by the same token. If you had a pumping artery, do you think I'd stop it? I understand that the lawyers listening to this will all go crazy, but there has to be some common sense and intelligence here. And one of those things is just go ahead and do it. So the private patient who comes in and the doc says, I'm going to look after him, don't touch him, Hands off, too bad. You have to go in there and... Honestly, that is the truth. You will only be faulted when things go badly. Of course I thought you were going to take a look at him. I mean, the guy's got abdominal pain here. Nobody knows what... Come on, they're going to turn on you. They're going to turn on you. And the fact of the matter is, is that, as Greg said, 
you could do this very nicely by just saying, I know Dr. So-and-so, let's get a few things started because it'll be a little quicker. He'll probably want to see the results of this. I know him well. I've seen other patients with him, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, sure, Doc. You know, in private practice, I don't know what your experience has been, Rick, but people are amazingly polite to each other. I mean, we would never have a confrontation over that sort of thing. I would get a call. If he wants to see the patient, and I'll say, look, the patient will be here in a few minutes. If you're down here, fine. Just go in and see the patient. If you're not, I'll just go ahead and start the process. And you know what they say? They thank you for it. They kiss you for it. And I'm not going to render a charge to that patient. That patient's private patient is coming. But I don't want that patient sitting there with me not knowing that he's got a tender belly, this, that, or the other thing. So I'm doing it to protect myself primarily and to help this patient secondarily in this case. This, by the way, works on both ends of the spectrum. Well, let's say you've admitted somebody to a private doc. If that patient is still sitting in your department waiting to go upstairs and something happens, you cannot pretend that he's not in your department. It is still, they're physically there. You've got to do something about it. This is clearly problematic because patients now are being held for six, eight, ten hours who are admitted. You were done with them in the first two hours. But they're still on your turf. And the fact of the matter is now ER nurses, who are not necessarily floor nurses or ICU nurses, and are now taking care of this patient, it's not the same as being where they're supposed to be. And this by saying, well, it's a private patient, does not absolve you from being aware of what's going on. When the blood pressure starts to go down or there starts to be new complaints of pain or anything, or shortness of breath or whatever, whatever. By the way, we don't actually use our muscle very much in emergency medicine. You know, if I went upstairs to the operating room and started to do a tendon case, someone would take me out and shoot me. And yet we never ask if the people coming down, the private attendings to do something in the emergency department, whether they're actually credentialed or whether they're still any good at doing that sort of thing. The truth is, people who are in private practice of pediatrics, most of them haven't done a spinal tap in years. You got people in internal medicine, they haven't run a code in years because that's not what happens in their offices. I think that we need to be a little more exacting about who has credentials to do certain things in the emergency department. You know, it's 35 years sort of into the specialty now, and we're only now just starting to say, no, this is a specialty, this is my place. Like you say, I don't come to the operating room and tell you what to do. You've got to be very careful about coming down and telling me what to do. 10, 15 years ago, that would happen all the time in my experience, that the consultants would come down and treat us like we're a dirt. In all fairness, a lot of the older attendings, when they trained... A lot of the people working in the emergency department were not terribly good. It was before the college. It was before the boards. It was before a lot of things really changed what was going on. I think the new young guys in basically all the specialties have grown up with our residents and realize that they're the equal of any of them on this sort of uh, emergent medical care. Well, the other thing is a lot of those attendings who are older used to moonlight in emergency departments, and they basically have the same kind of view of it. Now, as they then then, well, everybody can work in the emergency department. I moved there when I was an internal medicine resident, et cetera, et cetera, or worse yet, a surgery resident. You know, but those days are fortunately over. The issue of the private patient in the emergency department is really very variable. Some communities rarely have a patient seen by the private doctor in the emergency department, or occasionally. But in some communities where there's more doctors and patients, these people are very, very protective of their practice, and they can really be clog up an emergency department, because as soon as they come in, they want all of the nurses' attention. They want to be treated like they're treated in their office, where they have all staff to cater to them. And they often kind of monopolize our staff. Well, I think the other thing is, you're going to have to have some rules in the department. If they expect to be able to see their patient, and they don't want interference then they either have to be there 
or a one phone call goes out, if they're not there in five minutes or ten minutes, the emergency doc goes in. And that needs to be not on a case-by-case basis, but it needs to be a blanket policy. So this isn't personality getting involved. What really happens, I think, in smaller hospitals is the big admitters, you know, the bull surgeon, the cardiovascular people, those people who bring a lot of dollars into that hospital, expect to have certain rank and privilege. And I think that that can be a problem. Although I will say this, there's less of this now than there's ever been in my career. And quite frankly, most people who have practices outside the hospital don't want to see these patients. The hospitalists are becoming more prominent. And really, people who run outpatient practices of internal medicine and pediatrics and that sort of thing, they really don't feel comfortable doing some of those things anymore. Greg, there's a couple of other things about private patients I think we ought to probably bring up. What's your thoughts on the private patient comes to see his patient, and you notice a little odor of alcohol on the breath there kind of thing. You haven't seen them do anything kind of nasty yet or anything like they're obvious uh, errors, but physician is intoxicated. Do you get any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the thought goes back to William Shakespeare. Thus conscience doth make cowards of us all, and we know the right thing to do. Why didn't he speak English, that guy? I understand. <laughs> I think he was. That's the problem. We don't speak English. Like no, not English. anymore. <laughs> the big problem here is we know what's right. We know what we should do. We should quietly bring him into the back room and say, John, I've noticed this, and this is a problem, and I would prefer that you not take care of patients tonight, and I'm going to inform the chief of staff. You have an obligation beyond just the patient you're taking care of, and that is, again, if you wouldn't let them take care of your mother, why are you letting them take care of somebody else's mother? And Unless and, it's your wife's mother. Unless it's your wife's mother, but let's talk about people we love. And I think that the real question here is physicians have been good old boys for a long time. We don't talk about it. We don't act upon it. And if you've seen it now in the department, and this is aberrant behavior, which is potentially harmful to patients, then I think you have a moral obligation. And I hate to talk about things like moral obligations these days, but you better think about this down the road, that if this continues, what are you going to do about it the next time? You know, there's impaired physicians committees now in virtually every hospital in the United States. This was a quiet, unspoken problem for years. It's not anymore. I don't know a hospital that doesn't have an active committee and is doing monitoring of physicians. The State Medical Society would certainly back you up for that kind of action. They would expect that kind of action. And could there be reprisals? Let's say it's the big admitter to the hospital. Could he threaten the contract and things like that? You know what? That's not the kind of thing they want to see in the light of day debated in the local paper. I promise you that. Here's another one. You saw the patient. You think the patient really ought to come into the hospital because of this chest pain kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You call the family physician, and the family says, let me come down and see the patient. And then the next thing you see the patient getting dressed, and they're about to leave and say, what the heck is that going on here? And it's clear that this position has been made by the family physician that you really think is not the one that ought to go. We've talked about this a couple of months ago, about your obligation to that private patient when there appears to be a disagreement regarding the care that is substantive. Mm -hmm. What would I do at that moment in time is what you're really saying. And I think the problem is this. You have an obligation to the patient to at least, I would take the private attending aside if he was there and say, look, I think we're viewing the case differently. 
And again, as somebody who has to work with people over the years, the nice thing about when you're a resident, you know, you're leaving there in a couple of years. You can be a jerk and it's expected. In private practice, that's not the case. And I think that what I would do at that point is bring them in say, look, you and I are viewing this case differently. I think this is what ought to happen. And why don't we bring in, let's get somebody else from the department to adjudicate this. Let's call the chief of staff. I just want to present this case. Otherwise, I will feel obligated to at least present my feelings to the family. Now, that's a sword you don't want to pull out very often. Because I'll tell you, in emergency medicine, that could be the end of your career. But you have an independent duty to the patient. The MD after my name is just as big as the MD after his name. And I actually probably evaluate more sick people each day than he does. You know, this was difficult early on in my career. Now that I'm old and those guys all know me and we have a collegial relationship, I haven't actually had this problem in years. I mean, pretty much if I say, you know, John, this one's got to come in, they say, okay, not a problem. And I think that I can always pull that sword if I need to, but I'm going to be slow to do it. Although I can see the setting where there are hospitalists working for managed care groups where they are under pressure not to admit patients to the hospital, that that's going to happen more often than not in that setting. It may not be an issue where you are, but I can tell you that it certainly is an issue where hospitalists seem to have the goal of limiting unnecessary, quote-unquote, unnecessary admissions, because we see this, frankly, with some frequency, and we get into pissing matches all the time with this 90-year-old person has a fever and a urine infection, and they've been on outpatient antibiotics, and they're not getting any better, and you want to send them home. And that does happen, Greg. I'm sure it happens. But there needs to be a forum for those things to be discussed. And you should never sacrifice a patient in the emergency department, and you shouldn't have major confrontations over their body in the emergency department. The place for this discussion to take place is at the executive committee of the hospital. And if you have, in good faith, a concern about the patient going home, then what you need to do is refer to a third party somebody independent of the HMO, somebody else on the staff who can give an opinion about what they ought to do. Because at a certain point in time, you need to feel comfortable with the decisions that you're making. Here's another thing with uh, private physicians. We've resolved this at our hospital a long time ago, but some places may still be dealing with it. It's the private physician who sends his patient in for a shot of Demerol, morphine, whatever, some narcotic because of an exacerbation of this chronic pain syndrome that everybody knows that they have kind of thing, whether it be a migraine, a exacerbation of back pain, where in fact it's a verbal order over the phone to this patient's being sent in. Have you had that experience well, in the well, let me last give you, uh, 10 or 20 years? <laughs> <laughs> let me give you the case. This was a few years back in a hospital in the upper peninsula of Michigan. A patient was sent in by a private attending and this is key because it relates to the Michigan law. The private attending called and said, uh, so-and-so is having neck pain. You know, I've seen him in my office. Says to the head nurse, just give him a shot of Demerol. If he gets a little better, send him home. The emergency doctor at that moment is actually, it's his first shift in this department. He's supplied by a large group, and it's the evening, and it's the middle of winter, and it's Michigan, and he'd gone and went to lie down in the back. And he was unaware that the patient had come in. The patient came in, and they were having a little neck pain. Well, it's actually coming substernally up into their neck. The nurse gave him a shot. He goes home, and of course, he's what? He's dead in four hours. So the attending gets sued, 
but the emergency physician is also sued and under the theory that he knew or should have known mm. that such a patient was in the department. And they asked him on the stand, doctor, did you leave orders that with anybody coming in, you're supposed to take a look at them? He said, well, no, not really. Is that a COBRA violation? Absolutely. By the way, was the attending physician in violation of the Michigan law? Yes, he was, because you cannot call in a shot of narcotics on a patient who has not been examined under the Michigan law. So there was also a pharmacy violation in this case. But the bottom line is, if they want to send him in for a shot of pain, let them go to their office. Let them go wherever they want. But the emergency department is obligated under federal law. We're the only place in the department, in the hospital, obligated under federal law to examine that patient to determine whether an emergency exists, and we will make a, a decision. And it's rare that a patient who the private attending has not seen, that sort of thing, should be sent in and get a shot. See, if the hospital wants to do that, let them open up a shot clinic. Let them paint a room upstairs blue and call it the shot clinic. It will send people in. The hospital doesn't want to do that because they don't want to bear that liability. And I think that the ER, again, is the convenient dumping ground for every other problem in the society. If you think the patient is sick enough to need narcotics, they're probably sick enough to be examined by a competent physician. Or they could just end run this and say, oh, you can't give narcotics. Well, give him a shot of Tordal. It's the same kind of thing. They don't have that in their office. And it, that may relieve the narcotics right, law. Right. It doesn't take care of the COBRA law. And when they think they can use that room and not pay attention to the federal law, here's what the hospital should recognize. Again, I don't know how hospital administrators reproduce because they got no balls on this issue. Uh, <laughs> uh, where's the editor here? <laughs> shot that baby out there. But they need to talk to the attendings about the fact that the ER is not used that way. If a patient comes in there, somebody's going to take a look at them to make sure that they're doing all right. This kind of send them over for this or something like that. You know what? That's fine for convenience. Send them to a place that isn't covered by the federal law because the people who are really at risk on the COBRA issue are the hospital themselves. That's where the risk is, is that they're not enforcing the law in their own institution. And we could pull this out even a little further. I mean, have you ever seen a patient who came in from a private doctor and said, I'm going to meet him down in the year in about 15 minutes, don't register, I'll be right down there kind of thing, a non-registered patient yep. in the emergency department. And that's also, I think, uh, something that you really, just by policy, need to fix up. Yep. It doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get a charge. I mean, maybe you'll be there and you can just no charge them, but no charge does not mean no charge. Absolutely. The two have nothing to do with each other. What I don't want is health care being given out that we can't document in some way, shape, or form. And everything's fine. Everybody wants to sail the ship in fair weather. (laughs) When the storm hits, all of a sudden, the rats are off and everybody's down below. And I think that anytime they say, well, they're different, or it's this end of the, you know what? I don't see any exemptions in the federal law. You show me the exemption in the federal law that says this patient doesn't need a chart. I've never seen it. And if you're a director of a department, I think you really should have tried to influence the hospital's policy that says you can no charge certain cases when you think that the amount of work that was done was so nominal that you choose to do that or your head nurse can do that so that you don't annoy the doctor, you don't annoy the patient, you don't come up with a big charge because they checked the dressing. Right. I couldn't agree with you more. If all they want is this done or that done or a tetanus shot or whatever it is that this doctor wants done, 
we can adjust anything as far as charges go. But what you can't do is pretend the patient wasn't there. Yeah, non-registered yeah. patient. And by the way, from an insurance standpoint, in my hat as the president of an insurance company, if there's no chart, there's no coverage. If you saw somebody or you were on duty when somebody came in and there's no chart to back this up, since we charge per patient visit, that means you didn't pay the insurance on that visit. There will be no coverage that something go wrong. Can I spin this another way, though? And it's probably completely unrelated, but in my mind, they're similar. What about I'm seeing a patient in the emergency department and they've got renal colic, and I've decided that they're vomiting and they need to be admitted to the hospital. And I call the urologist and he goes, okay, Mel, that sounds great. Look, I really can't get in for 12 hours. If you could just write the admitting orders for me for some Demerol, for some fluid, that would be great. And I was going to just bring that up because that is the next extension of private doctors and emergency physicians. your mind. Yes, you must be. Is that a bad idea? right there. It's called orders. Is that a bad idea? Yeah, this is such a big topic, Mel. Here's the problem. Let me ask you a question. Do you have admitting privileges at your hospital? Actually, I do. No. Well, most of us don't. Well, we don't. You don't have admitting privileges. And we actively seek not to have them. Exactly right. The last thing you want to do is go to court and have them produce your privilege sheet. When you don't have admitting privileges, what are you doing writing continuing orders on a patient in the house? The other thing is, I'm very good at emergency medicine, but you know what? I don't treat patients in the hospital, and that's not been my career over the last 33 years. If I'm admitting somebody with an endocrine problem to an endocrinologist, I'd expect they would write the orders. The real danger is the doctors who want you to write the orders don't tend to be the greatest docs in the world, because great docs want to write their own orders. Their sense of ego says they're handling this case. And the last thing you want to be is writing a bunch of orders because you don't know what's going to happen to that patient. Now they're upstairs. Now it's four hours later. Now the blood pressure's down. Who are they supposed to call at that moment in time? You, since you're still down in the department, are they supposed to call him? I always love it when an attending used to say to me, well, you know them so much better. My response, come on down, get to know them, (laughs) you know, since you're going to get the first day's Blue Cross Blue Shield fee, which is the biggest daily fee because it includes the primary history and physical and the writing of orders, I think you ought to come down and do that. The best way to handle this is protocoled orders. We now have these sheets that have to do with things like pneumonia, congestive heart failure, all that other sort of stuff, which are basically check sheets which we'll start in the emergency department and then they finish them up. But the last thing you want is continuing orders as if you're giving continuing care to that patient. I actually have an interesting case to tell you about, and that is an emergency doc who, when the doc said, be a good guy, remember, no good deed ever goes unpunished. So he went ahead and wrote some admitting orders, which included bed rest, bathroom privileges. Well, when he trained, bathroom privileges meant somebody could help him to the bathroom. In that hospital, that meant they could go to the bathroom by themselves. So the patient got up out of bed, fell, and broke their hip. And now they're not suing the attending. They're suing the emergency doc for his order of bathroom privileges. I mean, how do you like that? How could you figure this sort of thing? But you know what? If you don't do that sort of thing on a regular basis and don't know what the procedures are upstairs and when they draw bloods and when they send people to x-ray and when they do this, that, and other thing, let the people who do that write those orders. You're not their scribe. You're not their boy. Show some courage here. So you will be found culpable for badness because you did that. Let me just say this. 
you could be. See, the point is, then it becomes a discussion. As and again, as soon as you discuss, as soon as you discuss in law, <laughs> somebody pays the profit. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. By the way, as an insurance person, I don't care whether you win and lose so much. I just care how much the whole thing costs. And when anybody says to me, well, I've been sued five times, but I've never lost, my response is, you've lost five times. It just is, you don't know what the bill is, but believe me, if you've litigated five cases, there's a whole lot of money going on somewhere. dollars. Oh, easy. Absolutely. Our insurance company sends us every month how much money has been spent on our behalf defending our case. Yeah, and they cases. should. And they should. The doc who believes that this stuff kind of goes on without a cost. Again, we pointed this out in the very first session. It's the only game in America where the only way you win is never play. So there are some tactics that people use to try to avoid writing admitting orders. Uh, One of them is to kind of give the phone to the nurses immediately. But I have also heard physicians, well-intended physicians, who say, listen, I think it's better care if I wrote some holding or initial orders because that doctor's asleep. I've seen the patient. That doctor's in a coma. He's just got out of REM stage 18. And maybe I just can give him something to hold him to for the next four or five hours till the sun rises and that doctor can be called when they write orders that say, call doctor so-and-so in the event of any changes in the status of the patient, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know that this is truly black and white, but this is really about trying to avoid litigation. That's what this whole tape series is about. It's not being a good friend to your doctor. No, no, you're right. It's not black and white, but our job here in this tape series is to try and put our docs in the most advantageous position possible. No, I agree. I agree. What else are we going to talk about? So uh, that was the private patient in the emergency department. Greg had some other things on his mind. He's always got things on his mind. (laughs) What I want to talk about, one of the subjects I thought we ought to hit today, and one which has a lot of confusion about it, and we will talk about multiple settings, is our Good Samaritan laws. Mm Mm-hmm. First of all, we don't know how good the Good Samaritan Law is in the state of Michigan, and I'll tell you why. Because since Michigan became a state in 1837, I believe it was, no physician has ever been sued for providing health care outside of the hospital or outside of their office. It's never happened. Is that because they've never provided care outside? Well, this could be the case. (laughs) But what has really happened is there's a general agreement, and this is true, I believe, in most states, that if that case ever gets filed, what's the message that's just been sent to every healthcare professional in the state? Don't provide care. Don't, Don't stop. stop. The car. Keep driving. Well, in fact, the state of Vermont, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, amended its laws to say that because it's a basically rural state, said that if you are a healthcare provider, doctor, nurse, a bunch of other people included in that bill, you must stop at the scene. And the state will provide total immunity protection for any act that you take. And I think that that is the only reasonable way to go about it. I hear this fear expressed occasionally, particularly by some of the actor doctors. Well, I'm not going to get involved in anything outside the hospital because I could be sued. Well, the answer is no. In the vast majority of states, you can't be sued. And it's not the kind of thing that people do, and it's not the kind of thing the court system wants to get involved in. Because when that message gets out, you're in serious trouble. I know a lot of members of the American College of Emergency Physicians will provide emergent care on airplanes if asked. I know of no case where anyone has been sued for doing that, 
and it is genuinely appreciated by the crew on the planes and by the airlines. In my 30-some years now, I've provided care six times on planes, and I think it's part of what we do for a living. And I have really no fears that I'm going to be sued for something like that. The more important questions for emergency docs, though, have to do with in-hospital Good Samaritan. Hmm. What constitutes Good Samaritan in the hospital? There's actually case law on this, and there's an excellent case called Kobe v. Schwartz, 1978. This is a California case, and it had to do with somebody who was admitted from trauma. And Mr. Colby was admitted from trauma. Schwartz and another physician, whose name escapes me at this moment, were involved in his resuscitation, actually upstairs in the surgical floor. They took him to the operating room, operated, and he had massive blood in the belly and exsanguinated at that time. The family sued based on the fact that medical care was provided in the hospital and that these were the doctors who provided it. The California court system let this case go forward. They tried an immunity defense based on Good Samaritan. And here was the thinking in the California case. And I think it's always good to review how lawyers think because they honestly do think differently than we do. It's not necessarily wrong, but it is different. And what they said was they took the three major parts of Good Samaritan and ran them against this case. Good Samaritan is care given to, number one, people who we did not have standing obligation or duty to. If it is your patient, let's say you've had an ongoing relationship, you can't claim Good Samaritan. Number two, it is not a part of your usual and customary duties to be doing this. And number three, no bill was rendered. You did not expect, nor did you receive remuneration as you would for any other service. So in the Colby case, what the law said was, you're right, Mr. Colby was not your patient initially, but you were on call for the hospital. So he was a predictable, although unnamed, party who would come into your sphere of influence. Number two, when you took the call responsibility it became a part of your usual and customary activity. And lastly, whether you rendered a bill in this case or not, since you got the first two out of three, it didn't make any difference. And so on that case, they were not allowed to proceed ahead with the question of whether Good Samaritan was valid or not. In counterdistinction to this is a very interesting case from Chicago. And this had to do with an internist who was on the floor Well, one of the nurses came running out and said, there's something the matter with this patient. And what had actually happened was, instead of putting 10 units of insulin in the bottle, somebody hung 100 units of insulin. He's not doing well at this moment in time. This doctor runs in, starts taking care of the patient, doing this or that. The patient does have some neurologic damage. They tried to sue him. So let's take the exact same thought process which was used in Colby, to this one. He was not the patient's doctor. He was not on a call list. He really was brought in out of the hallway when a nurse called, come in to handle this. It was not a part of his expected duties to take care of someone else's patient and no bill was rendered. So in that case, in-hospital Good Samaritan was supported under Illinois law. 
Now, in the emergency department, what happens in the department is pretty much your deal. People would say when you signed up, you understand the fact that everybody's been coming through your doors. This is a part. None of them are your patient initially, but it is predictable that they will be your patient when they step in the door. Number two, it is part of your usual customary duties to see the patients, and you generally render a bill for those services. So what happens in the department is not the big issue. For emergency physicians, the real question is when you're called upstairs in a smaller hospital, and I understand in big hospitals this doesn't really happen, but in certain places like where I am right now, it happens. In several hospitals ago, where I was chief for 25 years, a place called Byer Hospital in Ypsilanti, Michigan, I delivered almost 200 children because it's Michigan and it's winter and there's snow on the ground and OB didn't stay in the house. And so while we were waiting for OB to come in, we'd go up and do the deliveries. Does that constitute in-house Good Samaritan? Well, here's where the contract for services is important. It would be much better off for the emergency doc to, A, number one, have no guaranteed remuneration for showing up on the floor for these cases. Get it some other way from the hospital in some other administrative form. Secondly, it should never say in the underlying contract for service that you guarantee to cover those cases. Let me give you alternative wording, which is much more effective. If it says, you will respond under a Good Samaritan statute to emergencies in the hospital as would any other hospitally credentialed physician would be expected to do. That's what it ought to say. Because you cannot guarantee to be two places in once. So let's say you've run upstairs now and you're dealing with a patient. Now a child comes in downstairs in your department who's got an airway obstruction. Where are you going to go? Where's your primary duty? Where is it supposed to be? If you've guaranteed in contract to be more than one place at any one time, you may have laid yourself open to usual and customary negligence based upon that. And I think you have to be very careful with the way these things are worded, how they're put into the contracts, and the way you behave. This is really interesting that you bring this up because I've had a number of people ask me about this recently who work in the local area here under exactly those circumstances. Busy emergency department, but they are under contract or they're under some obligation to run the codes in the ICU. So they've got a busy ER, they run up to the ICU for a code, they're there for 10, 20, 30 minutes. They come back to the ER to a disaster and occasionally a disaster that's played itself out, that somebody's gone from unwell to dead. So... That's no defense, then. If you say, well, I was in the ICU, how could I have helped the emergency department patient? Well, obviously, there are some defenses. But any time it's a discussion, cha-ching, the bills just go up. I mean, lawyers don't want an answer. They want to talk about it endlessly. And this leaves a gap for endless discussion about the case. This is what we call constructive ambiguity. You've got to remember, one lawyer in town starves, two do very well, because they can fight with each other about any issue they want. And so I think you need to be very careful the way these things are written, uh, what they're supposed to do. And very interesting, they want you to come upstairs to handle the code. The nurses run codes just as well as you do. You understand that. And everybody who's taken ACLS understands it's rare that we add anything to those situations. And by the way, what's the outcome of that code in most cases? They're dead. You know, and dead is dead. What would be much better is if there was an understanding that if a patient was starting to look sick in the ICU, 
They sent him down to the ER. Put him on a bed and bring him down where you can see them attend to their problem. You know, it's rare that somebody goes from being normal to dead in a short period of time. The nurses know about these things. They know they're going downhill. Their problem is they haven't had the fortitude to call the attending or they can't find the attending or whatever the problem is because we really kind of know these things, what's going to happen. And I think that these situations should become rarer and rarer. I would agree. And hospitals are coming up with a thing called emergency response teams Mm -hmm. now, which are intended to identify patients who are deteriorating and intervene before the code gets called. If a hospital has a residency program, they'll have a resident in attendance. They'll always have a senior kind of nurse. They'll have a respiratory therapist go to and evaluate these cases. There's a lot of literature about how these programs are being developed now. More and more hospitals also have hospitalists who can serve that function as well. So there's the stimulus for emergency physicians to be leaving their department is getting less and less and less. And it should. I mean, we're busy enough in our departments these days. And think about it this way. The general public expect when they walk in that door, somebody can respond to the situation. And I think to be gone for 30 or 40 minutes out of that department, not only does it back it up so everybody's care suffers, but for that occasional patient who genuinely needs an immediate intervention, it could be life-threatening. You were shaking your head when we were talking about this, Rick. Why was that? Do you just think this is insane as I do? The idea that you cover the ER and the ICU is well, seems I think, to me ridiculous. I think Greg was right on, as he usually is on these cases. You cannot expect the emergency physicians to be the guarantors of care for all hospital catastrophes kind of thing. And I think the medical staff will understand, I cannot be in two places at once. I had a person in the emergency department who was extraordinarily critical. They were in pulmonary edema. They were going to need to be intubated. They cannot expect you to be two places at once. And I think it's tacitly understood that you cannot contractually bind yourself to be two places at once. There are four groups of physicians who are hospital-based. The radiologists... Do they run up for the codes? <laughs> Anesthesia? Not if they're tubed. What about pathology? I don't think so. We're talking about doctors. Yeah, yeah, and, <laughs> no. and lastly, emergency medicine. See, the truth is, we're sort of the court of last appeals medically for anything that happens in the hospital. The comment I made about patients rarely go from normal to near dead in 30 seconds Everybody can relate to that, and all the nurses in the unit know that. They know who's slipping downhill. They need to get a hold of their nursing directors and get a hold of the attending, or, again, in some places, when I've been swamped, I've said, look, throw that patient out of a gurney and bring them down here, because at least then I can be with them and my other patients, and then I'm not running back and forth to deal with this situation. We've dragged the OB anesthesiologist into this because the hospital is obligated to have an anesthesiologist in the building 24-7 for OB for these crash C-sections, but the fact the majority is the master, majority of the time they're feet up watching TV in the doctor's lounge. And so those guys can go to codes just as easily as we can go to codes, and they're all fundamentally anesthesiologists. They should be able to run those codes just fine. Sometimes you get called to intubate somebody on the floor. They've not coded, but they're about to code kind of thing. If you're this thing, we will often ask them to go do this if they're not doing a case. It's interesting you talk about bringing them to the ear because that's my default position for lots of these. I feel much more comfortable. I know the stuff. I know where the toys are for sick patients. We get called constantly to go to these codes around the hospital and around its grounds. And my default position is go, put them on a gurney, run very fast back here and we'll look up. There's only two places in a hospital to run a code, the emergency department or the ICU. Everything else, 
Can you remember some of the codes on the floor? Oh Do we have that? I don't know. Did they plug that thing in? Who knows? By the way, how come this box is empty? By the way, there's no central lines. By the way, you know what? I don't want that anymore. The tunnel of death. All death begins in radiology. Yes. Although we say this, and we all agree, this is a bad idea. It is very common practice well, you know, in L.A. for the ER doc to cover the ICU. You know in, in our hospital, at night, we're the only doctor in the building. We're the only doctor in the building, except the OB anesthesiologist. And he might be in an apartment across the street waiting for a call kind of thing. So we may be. And until hospitals kind of get the idea that they need to be operating 24 hours a day, that they don't shut down at 5 o'clock, they don't shut down on Saturday and Sunday, that the MR machine needs to be running till 9 o'clock at night, that these patients are just as sick at night as they are during the day, and it's not just a holding action. Until they get that mentality about it, we have no other choice. We are the only doctor there. Well, in an all fairness, there are very few doctors who are as equipped as we are to actually handle emergencies that are coming up. A lot of very nice general surgeons who are very good at doing gallbladders have not actually run a code or done certain things like that for a long time, and they don't feel comfortable with it. And I understand that. Understand this is much more common in smaller hospitals. In big hospitals where you have the manpower the person power to handle these sorts of things. It's not a big deal. Whatever you have residency training programs, you have slave labor, basically, to run that sort of thing. But our current problem is whenever you're asked to be two places at once, and I want to get back to the legal question, why not protect yourself in the contract? Because lawyers are smart. They will ask for the contract to see what your duties are. And then they're going to talk about, well, in the contract, you guarantee to be such and such and so and so a place. Don't do that. What you want is if you do get sued, you want to be able to apply to that in-hospital Good Samaritan defense. So you actually say in the contract, so I can see this from both points of view. From a legal point of view, what you're saying is don't contract me to look after the ICU. I will go to the ICU or wherever I can, if I can, under the Good Samaritan law, and I won't charge. I'm going to go up there. I'm not going to charge. If not immediately required to stay in the emergency department, you've got to stay in there. If, let's say, you've got somebody who's bleeding badly in the emergency department and you're in the middle of stopping that bleeding, can you honestly leave that department to go up to that unit? Let's say you're intubating a child. You're going to stop doing that to go up to the unit? So it has to be in relationship... You will do what you can under reasonable circumstances to help them out. But don't ask me to put my primary responsibility in jeopardy by leaving critical patients who need my care in the emergency department. But obviously there are contracts out there that read, I will cover the ICU, and they must be purely financially driven. There must be some cash in running these codes upstairs. Otherwise, why would you bother doing it? Because the hospital wants you to do that. Exactly. To get the contract, you say, oh, we'll also cover the ICU? Exactly. So it's financially driven. Well, it's financially driven on that end of it. And I think it's one of those things that you can still accomplish what you want to change the wording. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that everybody understands that you can't do service at two places at once, so equally sick patients. I mean, you can't divide yourself in half. But they're trying to provide a service for the medical staff to facilitate the care of their patients when they're going down. And so Greg's right on. I think it's a matter of I'll do what I can. I'll do my best, but my primary obligation to the ER. And those hospitals that really want to kind of get a handle on this, there is a lot of literature out there recently in the last three years on these emergency response teams. And there is some good data now that they're able to intervene early on with guidelines to 
abort these arrests that would otherwise have occurred. I mean, this is a huge pill. I guarantee you that the millions, is it millions of subscribers to Risk Management Monthly? At least. That a significant percent of them will be running to their director saying, what exactly does our contract say about doing these codes at the ICU? And frankly, it's a good idea. You you should go and ask. Yeah, see, it's not that you were not going to have to do some of these things. But you shouldn't do it with your eyes closed. And the contract should do its best to provide you the protection that you need at that moment in time. All right. Well, it's again fallen on my broad, muscular, handsome shoulders to do the summary. We cover so much in these things, it's important for us to summarize as often as possible. First of all, we talked about some issues with the private patient in your emergency department. The doctor that sends in the patient and says, I'll see them, don't touch them. Well, unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. You need to go and see them. You need to make sure that there's not an emergency going on here. There are federal laws that require you to make sure that there's not an emergency medical condition. Now, sometimes it may be purely, look, the person's fine, and this doctor is coming in to use your department for whatever they need to use it for. That's something that you have to work out politically. But do not be fooled. That was the key message. Do not be fooled. If something goes wrong, if this person's sicker than anybody thought, and they crash and burn in your emergency department, you will get sued. The reasonable man doctrine will say, look, you're an emergency physician in an emergency department. There's a patient in your department. It would be expectation of most reasonable people that you'd at least go in there and check on them and make sure that they're not exsanguinating or having something horrible happen to them. So do that. And if the private physician has a problem with that, then you just have to explain to them, that's the federal law. I've got to do it. If you don't want that to happen, don't send them here. We will do that. Also, a few other issues that came up. What if they come in and they're intoxicated? They're uh, being called by their patient to come and see them in the emergency department. They've been getting hammered. Tell them, don't go see this patient. This is bad for your license. Walk away. I'll see them. We'll work out some alternate care plan. If they still demand that they're going to see this patient when they're clearly intoxicated, then you need to get a higher powers involved. Your director, the director of the emergency department. Be afraid. Be very afraid under these circumstances. What about if they're just sending him in for a shot? Well, in most places, you're going to have to work this out again on a local basis, but you're not the shot clinic. Again, federal law mandates that you check this patient, that you make sure there's not an emergency medical condition, and you're probably going to want to charge for that if it's happening a lot of the time. So tell these people that are sending them in, look, you can do that, but I'm going to see them and I'm going to charge for them. If you just want them to get a shot, send them somewhere else. Send them to the shot clinic. Same thing with writing orders for these patients. So you saw the patient. You want to send him upstairs. You're trying to be a nice guy, a nice girl, and say, look, yeah, I'll write the orders for this patient uh, upstairs. No, 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 no. Most of the time, bad idea. Again, if something bad goes wrong, it'll be your fault. And they will say, this person you're trying to help, if they'd only told me, of course I would have come in and written the admitting orders if I had any idea that they didn't know how to assess for a sick obstetric patient, peds patient, surgical patient. Of course I would have come in. This just is human nature. This is what happens all the time. So again, there may be local policies that you have to try and abide by in order to keep your job, but it's generally a very bad idea. And I can tell you that most places are moving away from this. They're doing phone orders by the nurses directly to that doctor that have to be signed off on in 24 hours. This is much better than you doing it in the vast majority of cases. We then talked about good SAM laws, same kind of thing. There are lots of good SAM laws, probably in every state of the union, that say that if you're a doctor, a nurse, you have some medical training and something bad happens, you go and try and help 
Well, society wants you to do that, and so we'll cover you under good SAM laws. Some of them are changing to the point where, unless you act completely grossly negligent, you cannot be sued. So go and do the right thing. You do the right thing anyway. It's just nice to know that you're going to be covered for that. But it also happens in hospital. You're in the emergency department. A lot of the time, you're the only physician in the hospital. Something bad is happening in another part of the hospital. You can be covered by in-hospital Good Samaritan laws. We have no contract. We're not supposed to be on the OB floor, but something's bad happened. I ran up there to help. It didn't go so well. You're covered under hospital Good Samaritan laws, in-hospital Good Samaritan laws. But be very careful. Make sure that your contract doesn't say you are contracted to look after the ICU, contracted to look after the OB floor after hours. As soon as you've got a contract in place like that, then you're going to be held to a different standard. You may get sued under the normal laws. So you need to know what your contract says. You need to know what your contract uh, holders have gotten you into. Again, it may not change what you do, but at least you know what the heck's going on. From purely a medico-legal point of view, not from a financial point of view, from a medico-legal point of view, it's better for you to not generate a bill, but certainly generate a chart. Look after these things when you can under Good Samaritan laws. From a financial point of view, you may want to set something else up. But remember, if you do that, you'll be held to a different legal standard. Just know where you stand. That is the key point. Okay, we're going to do our, our call this month, and before I introduce our guest, I do want to make a clarification. Last month, we talked with Sandy Mahon of uh, Beta Health Group, our insurance company, and apparently we got something a little confused, and I think we do need to straighten it out. Sandy was talking about you know the magnitude of some of these awards that are being levied. She mentioned specifically a $96 million award, and I think it's really important that we acknowledge that that was not one of the awards against her insurance company. It was some other poor slob company that really got hit up with this. And it turns out, ultimately, that that word was substantially reduced to something, I think, in the neighborhood of $16 million, which is still quite a hit in the shin. So I wanted to make that clarification. Let me introduce our guest this month. Val Warhaft has been a friend for many, many, many years, probably, Val, at least 20. And actually, Val has worked with our group recently to help us in a variety of ways. Val is the chief medical officer and uh, head of risk management for a group out here in Southern California called Emergent Medical Associate. Val is heavily vested in not getting his group sued because recently they changed over to a program whereby they're responsible for the first quarter million dollars of every suit, and so they're heavily into limiting the opportunities for their doctors to screw up and for their patients to get hurt in a very, very tangible way. And I've asked Val to come on with us because his group has a variety of very specific policies they put in place at all of their hospitals to limit the risk of harm being done to their patients. And so, Val, welcome aboard. We've got Greg Henry on the line, who's basically calling in from Great North, Lake Michigan, and uh, we got Mel on the line as well. Hello to all of you. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, Val. Glad to be here. Yeah, I have a basic hit list, fundamental policies that I think every ER director, manager group should be absolutely involved in authoring and then, of course, implementing and making sure that the entire organization knows what they are. They are to the core of the stuff we do every day. Change of shift policies and transfer of care, the new multiple provider focus 
of incidents with the legal profession, if they can get two or three or four people into a case, they're much happier. So there need to be very strict policies and procedures for sign-out. Sexual harassment is another one, both in consulting and looking across our organization. This thing has come up more than I would have liked. seems to be on everybody's mind. A tight EKG policy, as we described, linked to the management of chest pain presentations and quickly sorting, you know, those that are ACS and getting those worked through. Critical value reporting. One of the areas we often find very deficient is there may be a critical value reporting process that the lab knows, but the rest of the departments don't. And when a patient moves on from the emergency department and you get a lab result that's faxed into your department or prints up and the patient's already upstairs, you've transferred care. How are those handled? And I think mistakes have been made all too often, and I've viewed cases where patients go upstairs, the potassium comes back an hour later at 9, nothing was done for that patient. Other areas of concern that I come across are patient notification and variants. As PACS systems and CR are implemented, the methods by which variance reporting for discrepancies between the ER physician read and the radiology read, I see groups that have overlooked or have no policy or have failed to update a policy. And although these notification variances lead to frequent professional liability incidents, they're not always that expensive, but they certainly are a nuisance. I know that all of our locations, we have a very, very tight variance policy and discrepancy reporting that addresses EKG variances, lab variances, cultures and labs that come back in a delayed manner, and of course, radiology is the sort of top of the heap. The area of allied health professionals, more and more so groups are using allied health professionals, mid-levels, nurse practitioners, PAs in their organization. And here, again, we have seen an increase, probably just because of the increase of volume that PAs are seeing, but we've seen an increase in litigation around the use of allied health professionals and outright myths of certain things that would be obvious to an ER physician, but not necessarily to a PA. One other basket of policies and procedures that I think are fundamental, particularly for those of us that experience patients that become boarders in the emergency department, is to be very clear in addressing who's responsible for that patient. And when the attending physician provides orders, are those orders being addressed? Moreover, are the attending physicians compliant to the general medical staff rules and regs by responding to see that patient? They may be languishing in the emergency department as an ICU patient, and is that attending coming in within the declared time frame of the rules and regs? And we need to be proactive in making sure that happens. Something as simple as cervical spine clearance. In some large facilities, your radiology department is on the other side of the world. In others, it's right next door. And each organization, I believe, needs to look at the process by which they clear the cervical spine. And should the emergency department physician be responsible to take the collar and take the guy off the board and discontinue the spinal axis precautions? Or do we allow the tech to run the film over and simply say, hey, this looks good, okay, take the collar off? And I've seen a few cases of catastrophe as a result of not having tight policies around that. We have discharge policies where at the time the patient leaves that the provider has reconciled the pre-hospital care note, if there is one, the nursing note, a set of vital signs, normal or abnormal. So there's a checkoff list and an aftercare process in advance of the giving of the aftercare instruction that makes sure that our provider 
provider has gone back and had a look at the last set of vitals, that he's not contradicting things that are in the nursing note. Again, systems that backstop a busy provider, because most of the time, you know, it's not that we have a bad or an incompetent physician. We have a system that overwhelms the ability of that provider, and therefore there needs to be systems to backstop them. One of the topics du jour, again, is code brain, you know, the uh, American heart favoring thrombolytics, and does your organization have a policy and procedure for addressing acute stroke? And then finally, obstetrics, you know, we do a look back at the MTLA citations and fines, and back in 2005, the most recent data that I could find, obstetrical behavior, the failure to complete the medical screening exam, inappropriate transfers, constant almost 50% of the significant fines and citations around MTOA. So that's the quick hit list that I thought I might just throw out there. And uh, hopefully the listeners will be provoked to go back and look at their own department and say, you know, what are we doing here? You gave us some concrete points on some of those, but I'm going to hit you for a few concrete points. So handover was your first one. What is the process by which you have your guys handover? What were the problems they were having? What do you make them do? Well, instead of standing at the desk and handing the chart and saying, I'm just waiting for this lab or x-ray or I just started the workup, they must go to the bedside. And there must be, again, a face-to-face handoff and in front of the patient a discussion of the process to that point. Um, Getting compliance with that. I have to tell you, is very difficult. We also have, with nursing, a checkoff list that at the time that the transfer of care occurs, that is if there is shift overlap, that all providers have at least transferred information. And then a very clear transfer of care time noted so that the new provider knows that he's now Well, I think the idea of having the first doctor introduce the second doctor to the patient, I think that that should be routinely done. And I think the idea of not doing that is really problematic because the next doctor walks into the room and said, well, the first doctor's off shift now. I'll be your new doctor kind of thing. It's really not the way to do that. Absolutely. Even in a restaurant, you know, you can go to any regular restaurant, and when your server changes over to a new server, they come to the table. I don't see why we can't that, do that in medicine, and we demand that of our providers. For sexual harassment, we all know about that one. Uh, critical values. So what is the process that you do with critical values? They get called to the ear, and that has to be logged. What's the steps you use? Well, there's no one process. One, again, has to develop something that works for the facility. Some facilities have IT challenges, so when a patient gets admitted and it goes into the computer, it may not signal the lab so that the lab is then redirected. So there's not one fits all critical value reporting process that works. What the group has to do is go look at what is ideal and you know what can be done. One important aspect of that is if the critical value is being called back to the unit secretary and she's got her other hand on the phone and a napkin and she writes it down on the napkin and the next thing you know that's in the basket. In any critical value process, we believe the physician needs to be the point of responsibility. Uh, one of the things that we did is, I think maybe this is routine but maybe not, is uh, a call log, a book that basically documents when calls were placed to various physicians because the book has bailed us out of more grief when we can show, no, actually, we did call you four times, and here are the times we called. And that's why we therefore called the on-call doctor, because you never responded. Those kinds of things are really helpful when people start pointing their finger at each other about who did what when. Doctors wouldn't do that. No, of course not. (laughs) (laughs) Patient notification for variants. What do you do with variants? So I said there's no fracture, radiology says there is. How do you pick that up? What do you do? 
Specifically, we, in a PAC system, the physician of morning shift is responsible to open up a folder that's created on the system that has the variances listed in it from the previous day. Um, within there, he decides the criteria that's clinically significant. And we have a process of notification where, of course, HIPAA compliant, making sure either the patient or the guardian appropriate representative. And in the end, if that process cannot be achieved within the breadth of that given provider's shift, we have health information management on board, and they send a certified letter that day to the patient so that we've closed the loop. Make sure that the patient is not angry. Our advice is this. You never tell somebody that it's not broken. I don't care what you x-ray. What you realize is that there is a chance for a fracture that both you and the radiologist will miss and may be picked up on a CT scan a week later. But what we usually teach them to say is there is no obvious displaced fracture. Nothing needs a pin, a screw, or a wire today. That doesn't mean that there isn't a hidden fracture. That way the patient is prepared if they do get a phone call. It wasn't that you were so dumb that you missed the picture. You were so smart you knew that a hidden fracture may be there. Greg, I love that response in that setting the expectation for the patient at the time of discharge and setting expectations in general leads to wonderful customer service and the patient not being then ambushed when something unpredictable happens. You know, Greg, coming back to your earlier question as well, in terms of the patient not being upset, they like to hear from the doctor. And so the responsible party to make the communication is our physician, Mel, because the physician-to-patient communication, above all, is what they expect. And we let them know, and we ask them to return immediately to the department or, of course, arrange an immediate follow-up somewhere else. But we absolutely close the loop. In that given shift, it cannot drag on another day. The next thing you talked about was allied health professionals. You noted that there's increased litigation against PAs, nurse practitioners. Is there anything specific you're doing, or is it just a heads-up, these people are getting sued, and do you sign every chart? What is your process? We have a, well, very exacting process. First of all, we have a treat and release policy and procedure that outlines the types and levels of patients that they can treat and release. In other words, they're privileged to do the medical screening exam on those patients. Then we have an extended list, and of course, nothing is perfect. What we have learned is that in two areas, our allied health professional seem weak, and so we would ask groups to look at this. As it relates to palmar hand injuries and puncture wounds, lacerations, the subtlety of the hand injury, we've now determined that our providers will always consult with the supervising physician. Eye injuries as well, again, those are high risk and have high potential for problems. So that's the other area that of late, very specifically, we now have a contemporaneous exam by the supervising physician. The retroactive behavior there is as a result of experience, both by observing other groups and literature as well as what we've experienced in our own organization. The next one you did was borders, and basically you just make it clear who's responsible for this patient now, but we've talked about this in the past. Even if you get the private doc in to look after the ICU patient, that's in your ear, that doesn't release you from litigation if something bad happens. Of course not. That's why borders in the emergency department, first of all, one should drain the swamp. You know, you need to get them to where they need to go. Once you're stuck with them, as long as one 
understands what are my responsibilities because if the physician believes, again, that's part of also the handoff or sign-out. I let my oncoming provider know that although this patient is admitted and Dr. Jones is taking care of him and he's going to be going to the unit, this patient is still your responsibility. And um, we have assessment and reassessment every two hours as part of the policy and procedure. So the nurse and the physicians who are observing the borders, once admitted, still have to go and do a drive-by and an assess-reassess. I would point out you are light years ahead of most departments on this issue. That's actually the reason I asked Val in particular to do this, because I do believe Val's group is light years ahead of most in this regard and why his perspective is uniquely valuable. C-spine clearance, okay, do you have a particular process then where the emergency physician has to clear the C-spine or can your text when the radiologist says there's no fracture, take off the collar? Depending again on the facility. In our smaller community hospitals, it is the responsibility of the emergency department physician to remove the collar. In the facility where there's a contemporaneous read by the radiologist and the radiologist is absolutely present, we have a combined policy where they can direct, once they've cleared the film, And again, it's patient comfort. We don't want them sitting upstairs for hours in a collar unnecessarily. So, yes, there's two answers. The physician, in some cases, completely responsible. The tech at the direction of the radiologist. Again, the policy written very specifically to those circumstances. So for discharge, you explained that very well. Code brown, uh, code brown, code brain we've discussed. (laughs) But for OB... You said that a lot of your problems with MTLA are with OB. Can you tell specifically what those issues have been and what you did to make it better? Well, they've been primarily in two categories. For those facilities that have to do a transfer, the transfer has to certainly be in compliance with MTLA. And in one case in citation, you know, the patient truly was in active labor. So the physician group and the providers need to clearly understand if I don't have an OB department in this particular facility and I'm going to transfer somebody, I still have the obligation to deliver that patient if they meet the criteria for being in labor. So that concern and sorting that out has actually been a a confusing issue, I think, in general as to when can I really transfer the patient. The other side of it is providing a complete medical screening exam and what is the responsibility of the emergency department as compared to your relationship with the OB. And again, in some hospitals, the patient at 20 weeks may go upstairs and be cleared by a nurse who's in compliance with a standardized nurse procedure. Do they come back to the ER for clearance? And the answer is yes. We choose to have the patient's last hurrah or hello come through the emergency department because regardless of presentation, we want to make sure that that medical screening exam is complete in all regards, whether that's just an OB complaint in and of itself or a patient who is there for other reasons with pregnancy as part of their presentation. Well, I'm glad to have been on the call. Um, We could probably talk about this at length. And again, this is only one element of 14, so to speak, categories or elements that we monitor throughout our organization and try and look at what can we do better. Can I throw another thing at you? This is completely unrelated. Completely unrelated, Or Are we done with this topic? Well, this is completely unrelated and may not be appropriate for the Risk Management Monthly tape. And that is, I know a nurse who was just in a meeting and she was instructed by the nursing administrator there that what had to occur now is that when a physician ordered penicillin, for example, 
that the physician had to write on the orders how much penicillin, in what fluid, at what rate, and what things it was compatible with. Because this nurse had decided, this nursing administrator decided that there was a memo from a number of years ago that said that the doctor's orders have to be specific. My response to that was, that's insane. I don't know how to mix this stuff. I don't know what to mix it in. That's not my training. That's RN training. That's why they go to school for three years. Or per pharmacy protocol. So what do you think about that? Is I that just insanity? I just need yeah, a yes, is. and then I'm going to clip this out and send it, it to is, the nurse manager. It is insanity <laughs> if you are asked to be list. What was it, the uh, compatibilities? The compatibilities, what fluid it should go that's in. Called a, that's what a pharmacist does that. They do the admixture of these drugs. And in fact, our nurses don't mix any drugs in bags. It's all coming down from the pharmacy where they do it in hoods and under sterile conditions and that kind of stuff. And they label it appropriately with expiration dates and all that other crap that's supposed to be done. I think hospitals are often their worst enemy by over-interpreting and bending over backwards to interpret the law so, so conservatively that uh, they are their worst enemies. Silliness. I think we agree. Whenever that somebody does that, I'd like to say, show me in writing where that has to be done. Show me the statute. Show me the Title 22 or whatever regulation, joint commission. You show me that. And once you do that, that will just deflate most of this because they can't. Right. Nobody else does it. No other hospital does it. Is it only a new rule for that hospital? Sometimes statements are made that are so ridiculous, you're caught by the fact that there is no response to this. It is so ridiculous. <laughs> I can argue with somebody when they've got a reasonable argument. When they say something like that, it's just like, the oh, Yeah, right. Uh, I understand. <laughs> well, it has gotten a little strange. We are the only business that I know of now that has people hired to make sure that we're following every law that applies to us and every regulation. We have compliance officers. It's a position to make sure that you're not breaking any laws. There's so many regulations that we have. There's a joint commission listserv that I watch every day. There's a cottage industry about protocols and procedures and, and what, what's the joint commission looking at now? What's this person? Are they tough? investigators or not and have you created a silent zone that's the latest thing that's going on right what? now a silent zone around the pixels machine because you don't want to get anybody confused about the medication they're pulling out of there for the right what patient and now they're creating the cone of silence coming down over the pixels machine <laughs> so we don't create any kind of uh, pharmaceutical errors here it is getting nuttier and nuttier and nuttier by the day yeah this is agent 99 in the <laughs> cone right. of silence i love this yeah, maxwell smart maxwell Actually, smart where i work that needs to be the an olfactory clear zone because it's not the talking that really could distract me it's the stink <laughs> well the other thing too is there's also a big thing about who has access to the med room you often see doctors walking into the med room. They say, no, 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 no. You don't have access. The med room is locked. You can't go in there for a Tylenol for yourself, et cetera, et cetera. Getting more and more and more formal about these kinds of issues. Gone are the days I could just walk in there and inject a little fentanyl and walk out. They were the good days. Yeah, it's much more complicated now. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's end this tape here. I think another good one. Wine. Uh, oh, <laughs> wine? Wine? Oh, my God. What are we going to do? I'm sorry. No, the green bottle I was talking about last month is Rolling Rock. Rolling, rolling rock. rock. So that's not a well, wait a second. That's a rolling beer. Rolling rock. But, beer. but it's fair to talk about. It's fair to talk about. I love Rolling Rock. Yeah, Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Latrobe, Pennsylvania. That's that. And what famous golfer came from Latrobe, Pennsylvania? 
Arnold Palmer. That's right. That's where, where the, the tractor was. That's where the tractor was. What motor oil was that? That he uh, Penzoil. Penzoil. Jeez, you guys are too much. And I, you know what? You know. This is amazing to me. Arnold Palmer, I think, is 74 years old. Three years ago, he was in the top five highest paid athletes in the United States. $24 million a year. All from endorsement. That's right. That's right. And the company that he works for, who does all of his marketing, is IMG, International Management Group. He's made more money retired than he ever made as a golfer. Oh, my gosh. Well, gentlemen. He only made up like a million or two million. Gentlemen, can we conclude this and go have ourselves a rolling rock? What about the wine? You got any more wine? Well, I do have one suggestion. Give me one suggestion. Which I think It goes well with rolling rock? It doesn't go with rolling rock. (laughs) Nothing goes with rolling rock except a shot. And then the wine. Yes, that's that's called a boilermaker, Rick. No, it's a Spanish liqueur called 43. If you go to better liquor stores, they will carry Spanish liqueur, 43. And this is what you want to use to mix with your white wines and your brandies when you're making white sangria. And so 43, that's the secret. And that is causes the special taste in good, well-done Spanish sangrias. Fantastic. All right, gentlemen, thanks again. That's it for the November 2007 Risk we'll talk with Management you Month. Next month. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye. See you later.